We are over the moon thanks to ISRO and soon we are heading towards the sun. But how did ISRO get to where it has today? The guest on my podcast will give her insights into the making of this wonderful organization, the people and the dynamics that have taken it to the place that it has today. Please welcome Geeta Ramudan, well-known journalist and co-author of ISRO, a personal story that she wrote with her husband, space scientist and one of the earliest to join the ISRO program, R. Arvamudan. Hello, Sandhya. Happy to be here. <laughs> Happy Onam to you and what an auspicious occasion to have you join Spotlight with Sandhya. Um, first of all, what were your feelings as you watched, you know, uh, the Chandrayaan successful landing on the moon? It was uh, sheer uh, exhilaration and happiness. I got my first glimpse of ISRO in the 1970, in 1970 when I got married. It was still a very, very small organization with just about a handful of young, mostly men, no women, who were all working on small rockets. In fact, uh, the first rocket I saw, I think it was a Nike Apache or something. It's a, it was an imported rocket from USA, very small which was launched from the Tumba beach. And actually, funnily enough, the first launch I saw was a failure. And so afterwards, you know, they rectified it and next day they launched it again. So from that to these huge, enormous rockets, which are built right here in that same Tumba, where they were launching those tiny little rockets and reaching the moon and building satellites, not only for ourselves, but for the rest of the world. and making inroads into a, a domain which was originally occupied only by the West, it's really some great achievement for the scientists of Israel. And I really applaud them. Wonderful news indeed. And, uh, you know, I jocularly refer to you as a wag, you know, like how the uh, sports people call these group of wives and girlfriends as wags. I call you an Isro wag. So why don't you elaborate how you became an Isro wag? He was known as Dan because uh, that's what the NASA people dubbed him when he went to uh, NASA. They just couldn't get their tongues around. Surprisingly, the French and the Germans and all can say, I'm a mother very easily. But the uh, USA, the NASA people couldn't. So they dubbed, dubbed him Dan. So let and me, what happened was let me uh, let me put this story in context for our yeah, audience. Yeah. So our Arvamudan was an engineer and a space scientist. And yes. uh, his he went on to achieve great heights, having been picked by as a young man, handpicked by Vikram Sarabhai to go and learn at NASA for an entire year. He came back. Yeah and joined India's Space Research Program and went on to achieve great successes. He was various times. He was the director of the ISRO Satellite Center, the Satish Dhawan Space Center, and the Tumba Equatorial Rocket Launching Station. And uh, I think being so closely involved 
as the wife of this amazing and rather understated and shy scientist geeta is able to give us such a fantastic perspective about how you know ordinary seemingly ordinary people they were not ordinary they were extremely intelligent but to the rest of the world they were just these quiet unassuming engineers plodding away who knew one day that they would go on to achieve the amazing success that they did and um, geeta has written extensively about isro over the years but more interesting is the book that she co-authored with arvamudan the late dan who passed away just two years ago but i remember that when they launched the book i think the audiences were so amazed to hear the story from a person who's been a first hand participant of isro's spectacular and should we say stellar journey am i right geeta yeah absolutely see this is the book we wrote isro a personal history and uh, dan was very particular that it should be more about isro than about him so it is a story of uh, it is the history of isro actually as viewed by him and he always says he was the very first person to be recruited for isro by dr vikram sarabhai he came, he studied at uh, madras christian college in bang in uh, chennai and then he went on to do his engineering from uh, uh, mit that is the madras institute of technology and they were actually everywhere he had uh, he did brilliantly and so he was immediately picked up and uh, the rest is history but the thing is that he was a hands on person as were all his colleagues at that time they were all young the average age of uh, tumba at that time was 27 so they were these people who didn't know anything about rocketry they knew nothing about anything except what they had to learn hands on and they had a wonderful experience thanks mostly to dr sarabhai who kind of um, encouraged them with everything whenever they because they were young and they were very excited about things they used to suggest something and immediately grant them the money and it's also because the uh, political climate at that time was one for encouraging science so whether it was uh, you know the the prime minister at that time was uh, pandit nehru in the 1960s when it started and then later on uh, indira gandhi rahul gandhi so many people came watch by every single person in uh, immaterial of their political hue has encouraged iso and that is how they have been able to grow like this that is one thing and that they were all very very passionate about what they did so you know it is true like somebody commented recently thank god for isro because it kept the best brains back in the country they didn't migrate to different countries you know we we've been going on continuously saying that you know they came from ordinary institutions they didn't belong to the iits and iims a simple reason for this even if israel had got go, went to kind of recruit people from iit they were not very successful because the aim of all those who went to iit was to migrate to the united states or to some of the western countries where they thought that they would lead a more uh maybe fruitful or glamorous life whereas the people and they didn't want a government job is tumba was israel was a government job so they didn't want that 
So it was only those who wanted to come back to South India mostly because Israel started with almost all South Indians, many from Kerala, or people who wanted to, who were very passionate about staying back. And this includes some of those who were already working in the United States who came back because they wanted to do something for the country. So when we say Israel is a you know, nationalist you know, institution which a nation can be proud of, which is, it is very true because people stayed here because they wanted to stay here, not because they were forced to, you know, yeah. That's an amazing uh, insight, Gita, and it really makes us even prouder of the people who are not swayed only by money, but who are interested in the knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And I think it also reinforces my case for our United States of South India. And that's just as a joke. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay, so, you know, um, there have been some biopics made about ISRO which try to glamorize the scientists. And, you know, there were these rocket boys and there was this, uh, this movie about Numbi. How far do you think they are true to reality? And uh, how much of it is fiction? Whenever I criticize any of these things, I'm told that the filmmaker ha- can have artistic license. Yes, sure, to some extent. I mean, you you can, you can glamorize it to a tiny bit. But I feel that all these movies have totally veered off from the truth and gone in some totally different direction. Um, the Rocket Boys particularly, they even got the history wrong. I mean, they showed Kalam, Sarabhai, and Baba together going and meeting Pandit Nehru. Kalam at that time was a young man. He he was a very close friend of my husband. And both of them had gone to NASA together in 1962. They came back in 1963. And after that, they were working in Tumba. I don't think either of them ever went to meet... Uh, I don't think Kalam ever went to meet Nehru with Baba and uh, Sarabhai. Also, right through, it looks as if Sarabhai only depended upon Kalam for all input. But I'm not taking away from the fact that Kalam was a very good and very earnest engineer who actually built the first satellite launch vehicle. And he would be the first one to say that he was that, and he was not politically inclined or he was not part of the you know, stellar group up there at that time. Later on, he became the president of India and things changed. And, uh, you know, but at that time in the 1960s and 70s, they were all part of this large group of young men who had come from all over the country. Many came from North India also. Some came from Karnataka. lot. There was a big Karnataka group. There was a big Tamil group. There were Bengalis. There were... um, uh, of course, a lot of Malayalis and so many of them. And they used to stay in a lodge uh, called Indra Bhavan in Trivandrum. And it would be great fun to go and see them. They're all these bachelors, you know, all in their 20s and some in their early 30s. Some who were married, you know, when they married, they moved out. But it was like, you know, they were all so enthusiastic and full of life and wanting to do things. So many of these, including Nambi, not joined at that time. And 
they are all, they all worked on the rockets see there no single person who can take any credit for any of the things that have happened i mean every single person was hands on with all the projects that were going on at that time because there were only few people later on you know the bigger bigger groups kept but every time they would have huge meetings and everyone would uh, sit down and talk about it and then discuss it because just imagine the number of parts that go into a rocket or a satellite the amount, amount of technology it can't be one person who did anything so you know that was what uh, really did um, really kind of uh, worked so when they show you know these uh, two and sarabhai was not a very athletic person who would have run up the indian institute of science place and you know hoisted a flag and all that most of the people who saw that saw all those things and baba jumping into a tank which is uh, had radioactive i mean it was also ridiculous so i feel you should when you're making biopics of the people even if they are dead you have to stick to the truth to some extent you can't totally veer off from the truth because there's nobody to protest about it so i think most of us who were associated with this were completely disillusioned with rocket boys and to a certain extent with rocketry as well because many of the things of course nobody was not guilty of selling any secrets to any foreign country but the way they glamorized his role was also you know it kind of uh, i don't know what nambi thought about it but all of us felt that it was uh, not close to the truth at all so that way the filmmakers tend to just take too much artistic uh, license while making their films and i feel with a very important historic moments doing this is not uh, correct because this is what sticks in the mind this is what you know they had the other one also mangalyan in which actually <laughs> this um, uh, lady scientist wheels in a pressure cooker and a kerosene stove or some gas cylinder into a meeting and demonstrates the scientific truth because she is a home science uh, she is a home science graduate or something so she shows it can you ever imagine such a thing happening i mean these sanitized meetings where people talk serious things it's just uh, and uh, the akshay kumar who was the supposed to be the uh, project director talks of kalam coming in his dream and telling him something this is not artistic license is just you know fiction fantasy <laughs> you know which is why i think uh, you know books like uh, the one that you wrote with dan are very important because they put uh, things in the logical and clear perspective and they still serve the purpose of inspiring our young people to take up space as a career and i think um, you know i would like to know a little bit more about some highlights from your book if you can recall them what was the most interesting part in the book that you think i had a quick read uh, once again you know just to refresh my memory do i had read it some time ago and i just found that it was such a huge sense of adventure for everybody they were, like you mentioned that they were all young they didn't even know what they were doing but that never stopped them from doing and i think the most painful part was when there was embargoes and they couldn't get the parts that they needed uh, from the us and how do you circumvent such a situation it took all the ingenuity and it set back the program by so many years i'm sure but 
they never gave up uh, can you tell me a little bit more i think it be very interesting if if you can recall something yeah i could i also want to read a small portion from dance epilogue because it kind of puts in context some of the things we're talking about He says, "I have grown along with Israel from the days when it was a mere idea in a visionary's mind, through its phenomenal transformation in more than half a century into a veritable giant that it is today. I have seen successful leaders steering it through its exciting force phases almost seamlessly. Technical expertise and leadership have sprung up from its workforce as if by magic to carry the torch forward. Failures have been converted to rich learning experiences, followed by eventual triumphs." I've sat in the control rooms with accelerating heartbeats when bold new missions like the Chandrayaan or Mangalyaan had taken off and shared the exhilaration among the colleagues when the mission succeeded. I have watched the politicians of the day proudly acclaiming Israel's feats nationally and internationally almost as if they were their own achievements. I have gleefully noted the reluctant acceptance of Israel's achievements by advanced countries who are willing to share their know-how with us and I enjoy watching many foreign agencies vying with each other for rights on our rockets and we are nowhere near the end of the story Israel has many more milestones to cross in the forthcoming years we still have to perfect a heavy liftoff cryogenic powered workhorse vehicle we have to send out missions with humans and recover them we need to send more missions into deep space to explore new frontiers i'm hoping to see some of these trials in my lifetime and i have no doubt that isu will grow from strength to strength to meet these challenges and more this is what he said and i'm sure he would have really cheered what happened with mangalaya mangalaya because uh, i mean with the moon mission we went and watched the mangalaya launch and uh, chandrayaan also madhavanar also is a very very close friend of ours all of them are i mean he be no sonath and radhakrishnan and all of them and it is really every achievement of every uh, flight is exhilarating you know when we look at it but i think one of the interesting small side stories is that of kalam and the slb Shall I narrate that one? Please. So Kalam, yeah, Kalam was uh, asked by Dr. Sarabhai to build a satellite launch vehicle, but by the time things took off, and all Sarabhai had passed away, and so uh, SLV was built, and uh, it was the Sierra Cota was also a very small rocket launching range range at that time. It was taken there uh, when. It, when they it was put on the launch pad for uh, launching then you know there was a lot of excitement about how whether it's going to go up or not and all that and uh, you know the i don't think i can find that anyway uh, anyway the thing is that dan was there and he was always at the control uh, panel also monitoring the launch and since they were friends kalam kept giving him thumbs up signals and saying you know it's going off all right it sat on the earth and it took off and so kalam said thumbs up and then suddenly as they were watching dan said he could see kalam's face just go from exhilaration to total sorrow because you know the it had veered off course and within the next few minutes it fell into the sea and tala kalam was showing the 
thumbs down to him and he said, no, you know, it was so, such a sad thing because the very first mission failed. But, you know, the even uh, Professor Dawan, who was in charge at that time, and everybody else, they all just said, don't worry, just go ahead, you build the next one. And the next one was a total success. So, you know, success always rides on the shoulders of failure. And literally, Kalam was lifted on the shoulders of all his colleagues and taken all over the place. So it was like that, so many failures. And uh, Dan was in charge of failure analysis. He said it would be, you know, it was a, quite a challenging thing to find out what failed and why it failed. Like even in the Chandrayaan, uh, you know, mission two, it was a tiny failure which prevented it from landing properly on the moon. It was rectified and the next time it happened. The credit doesn't go to any one person. The credit goes to the whole of Israel. Sat and analyzed it and corrected it. Uh, would you be able to share any insight? What is it that as an organization that makes all these people, you know, so steely to overcome these failures? I mean, one would think whichever organization or whichever field of work, you feel that, you know, I mean, you feel, take it very personally, it's a debacle. What is it that gives these engineers and scientists the ability to overcome and rise again and again? I think um, since I am only a bank and I only have a ringside view, so I cannot tell you the what exactly goes on inside Israel. But according to Dan, one of the most important things was since they were all young at one time and they all grew up together, they really realized the importance of encouraging young people not only to get into the organization, but also to express what they thought. Why do they think that something went wrong or went right? So at every project review meeting or even at a failure analysis meeting, everybody who worked on the project or every engineer and scientist was called. And everyone had a walk. No one has asked to sit down and say, well, they seriously discussed but all the senior uh, scientists as well. So that way, I think that gave a sense of great sense of encouragement. I'm sure that is one of the things which really made uh, people want to stay on. So in spite of the salaries not being at those days on par with private industries, there were lots of people who joined and almost everyone stayed on and on, you know. So the people who have risen right up to the top rose from the ranks up to the top. So I think that is one of the very important management uh, techniques employed by Israel, that everyone has a say in technical things, everyone. And even that they would listen to carefully before, you know, kind of uh, throwing it. I think this is a very important thing, that everyone's voice has to be heard. There's... Something that I think all uh, the viewers would be interested in knowing, it's that, uh, you know, the scientists and the engineers of Wistro, they seem to be quite, you know, uh, devout uh, theists. And we see them offering prayers before, sometimes praying during, and obviously offering thanks uh, after a successful launch. Some people feel that it is, kind of incongruous to see people of science 
you know, being so uh, devout in their prayers. Do you see any uh, anomaly in this at all? Or what do you think their views are? You know, um, I think people are different. Uh, they may be very devoted to science and they may also be very devoted to uh, spirituality. The present uh, chairperson, uh, Dr. Somnath, has said spirituality helps him to explore his inner self and science helps him to explore the outer world. So that is one uh, viewpoint which is important also. My own husband who grew up in a totally traditional uh, family where he, he went to the temple every day, he learned all the prayers, everything, but he consciously rejected religion when he grew up more. But that did, didn't mean that he would not go to the temple if I asked him to, or if his mother asked him to you know, take part in any of the family pujas or something, he would take part. And he would tell her very clearly, I do not believe in this, but I'm doing it for your sake. So there were people like that. There were others who took a very strong stand and they said, you shouldn't do this. And But one thing that almost, uh, I think most of, almost everybody in Israel believes in is that there should be no kind of religious or caste discrimination against anybody. And therefore, um, sometimes, you know, even in Sriharikota where we had the launch uh, facility, in the beginning there was nothing, but later on they put up a temple, a church, a mosque, everything, so that whoever felt that they needed the comfort and the security of religion could go and pray there. And it became like a, a, a ritual for everyone to take that because Tirupati is very close by. So they would take a cop, you know, a small model of the rocket and pray there for God's blessings. It gave people who had worked a lot, very hard on it, some kind of a, uh, something to hold on to probably and there is a, the, there is a temple even in Sri Kota where everybody goes in the morning because I lived in Sri Kota for several years I've seen people going and praying there in the morning before the launch so I don't think the two should be exclusive of each other they cannot be because people are not like that some people are wholehearted scientists rationalists others are not so I think uh, Israel is kind of um, okay with everything you know and i think it represents you do whatever you want to do but yeah. you know this is if it's important to you go ahead pray if it's not important you don't pray i think that's a very good uh, uh, attitude to have that's yeah. good yeah to each their own and i think it's represents um the true india which is very accepting yeah. and all embracing now yeah. question that i think would resonate very well with you because you're such a um, as a writer, you focus so much in your other books about, uh, you know, gender equality and uh, you celebrate the, both the uh, successes that um, women have achieved and you also discuss the problems that women continue to have in your very many books, uh, which, you know, you wrote uh, Disappearing Daughters, uh, which, talking about female, female infanticide and you talked about Unbound, and you've also written several other books of uh, fiction and almost uh, almost a semi-biography, I would say, with Colors of Gold. But one thing that I recently saw that you mentioned in one of your articles is the fact that one of the things that 
also contributed to the changing um, dynamics within ISRO happened with the inclusion of women and they're at all levels. So what is your take about it? You know, uh, in 1970, there were no women, okay, not even stenographers, because uh, I think that was an all, unlike the US and other places, over here, stenography and PA and all were all male uh, jobs. And the male bosses of the time also preferred to have male PAs and all, because the thinking at that time, which is later on proved to be totally wrong, was that women get married, they have children, they have to bring them up, so they are totally unreliable, we cannot have them as PAs or even stenographers. But side by side along with that, because we ISRO was in Kerala, where a large number of women went in for medicine and engineering, even in those in the early, in the 60s, whenever they went on recruitment drives, there were also women who came and applied for the job. And, you know, it's just that the best person got the job. So by 1970, we slowly had a few engineers and a few doctors and so on. And uh, I must uh, over here uh, recount an amusing incident. When Dan went, he himself was a young man. He went to interview women at the, I mean, the engineers at the engineering college. And one woman engineer came. It was the first time she was taking an interview and she got so scared that when he asked her the first question, she just fainted. And he got so scared, he didn't know what to do. <laughs> but the good news is that not only did she recover and come back, she rose to become one of the senior most engineers in Israel before she retired. But by the late 1970s and 80s, there were more women engineers coming in. And right from the beginning, there were women doctors also. There were women scientists. And uh, today, that uh, they said there's more than 25% of uh, the staff are women technical people. A lot of them from Trivandrum. Uh, the second largest uh, set comes from the satellite center in Bangalore. And I think others are the smaller institutions, which are the in Ahmedabad as well as in... Uh, uh, is track and some of the other smaller institutions, but altogether there's a large number of women who have joined. And I think it made a huge difference because it gives another uh, aspect, give another perspective of the whole issue. And one thing is they have all of them, many books have come out, many articles have come out about them. They also they're very happy in this row because they're given a chance to work on the latest technology. They, they're not put down because they are women. And if they are willing to work night shifts, if they are willing to work right through to take on challenges, to travel, some of them had to go to French Guiana and stay there for months together while the satellite and launch was getting ready. They were willing to do all that. And when they were willing to do it, Israel gave them an opportunity. So I don't, I think the day is not too far off when Israel might even have a woman chairman, uh, chairperson. I'm sorry to say chairman, chairperson, uh, in the near future. Uh, there are many women who are now coming up and who might be eligible to do it. So I think that's a fabulous thing that has happened in Israel. That's really wonderful. And I think all the more reason for us to feel proud of uh, ISRO. 
as a truly Indian organization. Now with so much emphasis on equal jobs and equal pay, I think uh, ISRO is certainly going to lead the way in, in its intergalactic journey, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, but yeah, they need both men and women to colonize a new area, don't they? So this could be... Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> there were many marriages also which took place in Israel. You know, many Israel men and women got married to each other. Some were romance, some were arranged. There were many like that. So, yeah. Israel is a place, it's a family. It's more a family than an organization for all of us who have been there right through. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. And uh, do you think that will uh, interest you in uh, writing another book? I, you know, I mean, I, you're such a fabulous writer and journalist after having half a dozen books published and maybe this latest success of Isro could be the starting point for another book. Actually, I'll tell you another small funny story. Right in the beginning when I uh, was a young bride yet and, you know, I the dance boss in Israel at Tumba knew that I was a journalist. He said, Dan, why don't you ask your wife to come along and write up, write up about one small, some small launch for uh, the Hindu. So Dan said, yeah, he's called you. Why don't you come? So I went there and it was some very tiny launch and Kalam was the person who launched it. And I knew only Kalam in that group. So I just said, uh, Kalam wrote, you know, launched this rocket and the others were all there. So his boss got a bit angry. He said, why is she not mentioned me and why is she mentioned only Kalam? That was one thing which made Dan a bit upset. You know, why, why you've got every right to write whatever you want. You don't come back to his road, right? And then some people started commenting also, you know, it's an, you know, this he's bringing his wife along so that they can give uh, good uh, reviews and all. So we both sat down together one day and we decided that I'm not going to write about Israel at all. There are so many other things in the world to write about. So let other people write about it. I'm not going to write. So we stopped and Sanabai passed away. He was very keen that I should join Israel as some kind of a writer or something. But he passed away and I stopped. And many, many years later, da Davin, Professor Davin called me and he said, how come you never write about our launches or any of these things? So... I said, no, we took this decision long ago and I'm quite happy at doing other things. He says, call that young man of yours. I want to tell him off. How dare he say you should write about Israel? It was a joke, of course. We, I didn't. I continued not to write about it. Until once Israel called, invited me to French Guiana to write about one of the very prestigious launches which he had. So both I went along with Dan. He went by ordinary plane, but I went by the chartered plane, which was wow. organized by the, the same. Yeah. So get preferred treatment over scientists. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And we got to lounge in because it was a long journey from Paris to French Guiana. We got beds to lounge in. We got champagne on our side. <laughs> and uh, I had even got, a, they had booked a separate room for me also over there. And I said, no, I want to stay with uh, Mr. Aramathan. They thought something is wrong over here. No, no, we can't allow you to stay there. Okay. <laughs> and then we had to convince them that we were married. So <laughs> anyway, it was a, that was a very fabulous trip. But otherwise, I have not written about Israel. So except for this book for which I collaborated with him and uh, wrote right. it. It was only his uh, input, 
which I just kind of put it into more readable language for lay persons. The main ambition was that young people should understand the importance of science and research and they should get excited by it and get themselves involved in this rather than in squabbling over all sorts of other things, you know. And I think in a way he succeeded because I don't know how many young people wrote to him. And the book launch you were talking about in the Bangalore Lit Fest, there were queues of people standing to get his book. And they were all young, you know. It was nice. It's a good uh, thing. I'm sure, um, you know, with this recent success of Chandra and P and with all eyes set now on the sun, uh, the book is going to be even more inspirational and it's really something to cherish for all of us. Um, yeah. And I look forward to reading your other writings too, Geeta, and I hope you get inspired to keep writing. Um, Thank you. For, <laughs> Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. And to our viewers, I hope you enjoyed listening to Geeta Arumudan sharing her insights to India's space journey. Until I'm back again with another interesting guest, take care and bye-bye.